Morning, friends. I'm bringing greetings from uh, the First Baptist Church in the city of New York. Uh, it is a joy to be able to bring the word to you all. And uh, we were just reminded of how the Lord is just working through many different uh, faithful gospel preaching churches throughout our city. And so we give him praise and glory for that. Uh, please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 5. The Gospel of Luke is one of the four Gospels that we have in our Bibles. Uh, It's one of the four accounts in the New Testament uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Uh, And it's one particular narrative from this Gospel, the Gospel of Luke, uh, that we're going to be focusing on this morning. It's in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So let me begin by just reading the passage. So if you would please look along in your own copies of the scripture. This is uh, the word that God has for you this morning. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Father, please help us now. We confess that in and of ourselves, we do not love your word and we do not want to submit to your word. And so we pray that the spirit would work in us that the seed of your word would fall on good soil, that you would grant to us the humility to submit ourselves under the authority of your word. Father, please grant to us the ability to concentrate and tune out any distractions in this hour. Help me to say what is true and helpful for your people. And help us, Lord, to bring every aspect of our lives in line with your word that We would glorify you in all things. We ask all this in the precious name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I have five points this morning as we work our way through this narrative. And the five points are all brought to you by the letter C. We're going to look at the crowds, the catch, the crisis, the comfort, and the call. So we've got the crowds. The catch, the crisis, the comfort, and then the call. 
And so we'll start by looking at point number one, which is the crowds. And by this point in his ministry, we're in Luke chapter 5 here, Jesus has already become very popular. His miracles, his healings, and his casting out demons, like that alone is going to draw a crowd. But it's not just his miracles, it's also his teaching. Look back at the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 32. It says that they were astonished at his teaching, and his word possessed authority. And no one ever spoke like this man. And so on this particular day, uh, Jesus is by the lake of Gennesaret, uh, also known as the Sea of Galilee. It's the largest body of water in that region. And, and the crowd has gathered. The crowd is pressing in on him, but not because he's casting out demons and not because he's healing the sick, not because he's doing signs and wonders. No, they're pressing in on him Verse 1, to hear the word of God. Now perhaps as we read the Gospels and we read these accounts of Jesus' life, uh, what we're kind of most naturally drawn to is that the miracles that he does. Uh, that's what excites us. But I want you to see the repeated emphasis on his teaching uh, that Luke puts in this section of his Gospel. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and what is he doing? He taught in their synagogues. And then Luke tells us about how Jesus goes to his hometown in Nazareth, and what does he do there? Well, on the Sabbath day in the synagogue, he teaches. And then Luke tells us about Jesus going to Capernaum, and what does he do there? Look at chapter 4, verse 31, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Then Luke wraps up chapter 4, look at verse 44, by telling us that Jesus was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And that leads us directly into chapter 5, right, our text for today. The crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Right, teaching, preaching the word of God, that clearly was a priority for Jesus. And I think we as Christians, or as those who follow Christ, we would do well to similarly prioritize and emphasize the teaching and the preaching of God's Word. And so our churches should be centered on God's Word. We as Christians should structure our weeks and our days around the teaching and preaching of God's Word. We should be preparing our hearts our minds when we're going to sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word. We should be meditating on its truths even after the sermon or the Bible study is over. But to seek to submit to the truths being preached and taught, right? Humbly allowing it to shape our lives. The word of God must be changing our lives. Now what is Jesus teaching on that particular day by the Sea of Galilee? Well, it doesn't say here in Luke chapter 5. But if you look back just two verses into chapter 4, right? look at Luke 4.43, I think we get a pretty big hint. Luke 4.43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was sent for the purpose of preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. 
And so is it possible that, I don't know, on that particular day, he's teaching about head coverings and church discipline? That's possible. But in all likelihood, he's preaching, he's teaching about the kingdom of God. He's preaching and teaching that he is the spirit-anointed Messiah who came to seek and save the lost. He's preaching and teaching that he's come to establish a kingdom here unlike any on earth. The kingdom of God is like. Seek first the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Right? He is preaching and teaching these things. But then a problem arises. And any preacher will tell you that there's always a, a multitude of problems that can arise when you're preaching and teaching. But I think the best one, the best possible problem to have is overcrowding. Right? There's just too many people who want to hear the word of God. And so that's exactly what's going on here. Look at Luke 5.1. The crowd is pressing in on him. And so Jesus is kind of standing by the lake and he's trying to teach. But now he can't see most of the people that have gathered because of this big crowd. There's no space. It's awfully hard to teach like that. And he really can't back up any further because he's right on the edge of the water. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he sees two boats, fishermen's boats. So he gets into Simon's boat and he asks him to push out a little bit. Now at this point, Simon, uh, Peter, uh, he hasn't become a full-fledged disciple of Jesus yet, but he knows who Jesus is. Uh, He was first introduced to Jesus by his own brother, Andrew, all the way back in John chapter 1. We have found the Messiah And so he's followed Jesus around a little, and he's still doing the fishing thing full time. But he's also aware, at least on some level, that this Jesus of Nazareth, uh, he is no ordinary man. And so uh, Simon is happy to have Jesus in his boat. And so they push out a little bit. They go out a little further into the water. And so now they're out on this boat. Uh, Jesus has a little bit of distance between him and the crowds. And so now he can see the crowds, and they can see him in a central spot. And also the acoustics work a little bit better now that he's out on the water, right? The the sound bounces off the water and also off the slopes that go up from the water. And so now the crowds can hear him better. So he's kind of got the perfect spot to teach from, and so he sits down in the boat, and he teaches the crowds. The crowds came to hear the word of God. And that's exactly what they got at the very words of the incarnate word of God. And so point number one, we have the crowds. Which brings us to point number two, the catch. At some point, Jesus finishes his teaching. It doesn't say anything about the crowds, but presumably they're starting to disperse. They're starting to leave. And in verse four, Jesus now turns his attention to Simon. Remember, he's in Simon's boat. And he makes, uh, at least from Simon's perspective, he makes a a somewhat bizarre request. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, why is this a bizarre request? I think there's several reasons For starters, Jesus is not a fisherman. Simon is a fisherman. And when I say he's a fisherman, I don't mean like that's his weekend hobby, like 
He enjoys spending Saturday mornings on the lake with the guys. No, this is his livelihood. It's probably something that his father did before him. It's probably something that he's been doing his entire life since he was a a young boy helping his father. Simon is a fisherman. But Jesus, Jesus is a carpenter's son and a teacher. Sure, he's a teacher like none other, but Jesus is not a fisherman. And so why is this non-fisherman telling me, a fisherman, about how to catch fish? It's like if I showed up to your job tomorrow, showed up to your workplace, and I started telling you how you should do your job. I'm sure you'd be nice and polite about it, but you'd be like, all right, Pastor, uh, thanks for coming by, thanks for visiting, uh, but you, you need to kind of stay in your lane and let me do my job. But second, consider this, look at verse 5. All the fishermen, it's not just Simon, all of his partners, which we're going to find out later in the story, includes James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they toiled all night and they caught nothing. These guys, they would have known this lake like the back of their hand. But they caught nothing all night. But now you just show up after teaching and you think you know where the fish are? Third, this type of fishing with the kinds of nets that are being referred to in this passage, it was typically only done at night. In the daytime, apparently, these nets are just way too visible for the fish, and so that's why Peter and his friends fished at night. And so you, you want us to drop the nets now? Like in the middle of the day? This stuff is only supposed to be used at night. And so you've got all of those things going against this request by Jesus. Add to that the fact that Peter and his men, they're exhausted. They're discouraged. I mean, they just spent the entire night fishing and they caught nothing. These guys, basically, they're 100% commission, right? If they don't catch anything, they earn nothing. And so this isn't like, you know, like Grandpa and Johnny go out and... They don't catch any fish. And it's like, oh, all right, tough day on the lake, bud, but it's all right, we'll get them next time. No, this is a complete failure of a night at work, right? They've worked all night and they caught nothing. That was a complete failure. They finally call it quits. They finally clean their nets. They put everything away. So hopefully we can try again the next night. They're exhausted. They're discouraged and they're frustrated. And now... Jesus wants us to take everything back out to fish. It's kind of like when you get home from a, like a really exhausting, draining, discouraging day of work, and you, you take a shower, and you get changed, and you're, you're, you're about to hop into bed, and you, you, you pull the covers over you, and you're finally comfortable, and then your boss calls you. Hey, we have an emergency. You need to come back to the office you're like, oh, I just, I just want to go to bed. And so we wouldn't blame Simon here for not wanting to do this, right? But look at verse 5. Look at Simon's response. Master. It's a term of respect. Master. Uh, we've toiled all night and took nothing. But. And that's the key word in this entire narrative. But. But at your word, I will let down the nets. 
And so this is not perfect faith, right? This is not a complete, unquestioning, unwavering allegiance to what Jesus says. There's definitely some doubt and some reluctance mixed in here, but it is faith nonetheless. It's faith like a, like a grain of a mustard seed, but it is faith nonetheless. It's enough faith to overcome the doubts that he has, right? To, to look beyond all of the reasons as to why this is a really bad idea. But at your word, I will let down the nets. I like how the NIV puts it. I don't know if any of you have uh, the NIV in front of you, but it should say, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Like everything in me, the lifelong fisherman in me, the exhausted and tired, I just want to go home fisherman in me is wanting to say no, but because you say so, but because you say so, I'll do it. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And what happens? They enclosed a large number of fish. Large number, the Greek word there is plethos. Think of the English word plethora. There's like a plethora of fish. Some translations will have a multitude of fish. Uh, They enclose a multitude of fish, and it's such a great multitude that the nets begin to break. I love that. I mean, this is not like when you go to one of those grocery stores and they give you those really cheap plastic bags, like you put the first item in and the bag starts to rip. These are fishermen's nets that were designed for holding lots of fish. And these nets are breaking, right? That gives us an idea. They're the bursting at the seams that gives us an idea of just how many fish this was. And so they they begin to pull the nets in and uh, pull the fish into the boat. Well, one boat's not going to be enough. We got to get that second boat over here. And so they call the second boat over. And even then, there's so many fish that the boats begin to sink. Some of us might be picturing like a little two-person canoe. Like you've got Peter and you've got Jesus and you start pulling some fish in and the canoe begins to sink. No, this is not like a little canoe. Uh, This is in all likelihood a big fishing boat, right? Like a a 20-foot long boat. Uh, You don't do commercial fishing from a canoe, right? And again, these are fishing boats that are specifically designed for commercial fishing, for holding fish. And these boats are sinking. Again, gives you an idea of just how many fish they caught. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we explain this? The career fishermen, the guys who've been fishing their entire life, they couldn't catch a thing all night. It's daytime when you're not even supposed to use nets like this. It's not like they're out there with Jesus for a few hours. Jesus is like, oh, yeah, try this spot. And then they try the catch. All right, let's try over there. And no, they don't. Let's try over there. And then they finally catch something. No, this is the very first time that Jesus says, drop your nets. And literally, it's boatloads of fish. More fish than they can handle. Friends, this is nothing short of a miracle. This is the God who created that lake, right? The God who created the water in that lake, the God who created every single fish in that lake. 
the God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, this is that God sovereignly bringing the fish to the exact spot that Peter and his men would drop the net. This is the God who directs every molecule in the universe, sovereignly directing all of those fish into that boat. Friends, this is a miracle. And here's what I love about this. It's such an unnecessary, like, over-the-top miracle. Like, I think Jesus would have made his point that he is the omnipotent sovereign by bringing in, like, a hundred fish. Right? That would have been more than enough. Like, he didn't literally need to bring in so many fish that the nets would break and the boats would sink. But... Who are we dealing with here? We are dealing with him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think. Point number two, the catch. And so the fishermen fish all night. They catch nothing. They're absolutely exhausted. They're, they're ready to go home. But now here comes Jesus. He tells them to fish one more time. Peter obeys, maybe reluctantly. Maybe not really believing that Jesus knew what he was doing. But if you say so, I'll do it. Now he's got more fish than he knows what to do with. So, how is Peter going to react? This is amazing, Jesus. You just made up for a whole wasted night just like that. Wait a minute. I, I, I think we have something here, Jesus. Like, like, I got the boats. I got the nets. Right? I got all the gear. You got all the, you know, the control and the fish thing. Go half seas on this thing. We'll be rich. We can make a business out of this. Not at all. The economics, the, the finances, the business, that's not on Peter's mind at all. Even the fish, right? he's got boatloads of fish, his boat is sinking. That's not on his mind at all either. All he can think about is what the fish are telling him about the man who is standing in front of him. And it drives him to a crisis. Point number three, the crisis, look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I am a sinful man. You look at that and you say, well, That kind of comes out of nowhere. Jesus hasn't said anything about sin or righteousness or holiness or God's law or anything like that. Look at verse 7 said, well, Peter, have you been cherishing idols in your heart? Have you been coveting Zebedee's fishing business? Have you been uh, loving and treating your wife well this week? Like, if Jesus was confronting Peter on his sins, then we would expect him to say to Jesus, oh, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. But look at the text. The only thing that Jesus says is put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. What's that got to do with sin? Nothing. Well, nothing directly. But verse 8, when Simon Peter saw it, that is, when he saw the miraculous catch of fish, he quickly realized who it was that was standing in front of him. This was no mere teacher. No, this is God incarnate. Notice how the title with which he addresses Jesus how it changes from master in verse 5 to now Lord in verse 8. Lord, kurios, it's the word used in the Greek Old Testament 
for the name of God. Kurios is a word that's been used 33 times so far up to this point in the Gospel of Luke. And each of those 33 times, it refers to deity. Kurios. You know, the one the angels told us about on that first Christmas. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's who's standing before him. None other than the Lord. God himself, God incarnate, God in the flesh, the God of the universe, the God who rules the seas, the God who made the fish, the God who could, by the word of his power, draw every single bass and trout and sunfish in that lake into Peter's net. That's who's standing before him. And being in the presence of God, understanding that he is in the presence of God, well, that makes Peter see himself and his own sinfulness in a way in which he'd never seen it before. So often, uh, whether it's Peter or it's me or, or it's you, uh, we think of righteousness and sin primarily in relation to one another, right? primarily in relation to those around us. And so we'll, we'll say, well, I'm more righteous than him. I'm not a sinner like her. And we can kind of take comfort in that because by definition, uh, at least half of us are above average. But that's not the standard that we're ultimately being measured against. That's not the standard that establishes us as righteous or sinful. The standard is that of a holy God. And that's a standard that each and every one of us falls woefully short of. And that's what Peter realizes here. Even as he's like face to face now with the one who is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy, very God of very God, it crushes him. I am a sinful man. You, holy God, are perfect. I am a sinful man. We see that kind of reaction throughout the Bible. You know, the book of Job the end of the book, God answers Job directly out of the whirlwind. And what is Job's reaction? I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. An encounter with the holy God brings Job to a realization of his own sinfulness. And he despises himself. Or Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of God and he sees Jesus on his throne. The, the train of his robe fills the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what is Isaiah's reaction to seeing that? Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I, mit, I dwell in the midst of of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so an encounter with the holy God of the universe brings Isaiah to a realization of his own sinfulness. And he pronounces woe upon himself. Holy, holy, holy is God, and sinful, sinful, sinful am I. You see, that's what happens here with Peter. When sinful man has an encounter 
with holy God? Nothing else matters. Uh, your, your livelihood and your fishing business and your nets and your boats, none of that matters. All you can see is a holy God and how you've sinned against that holy God. And that just drives you to your knees in sheer terror in fear of judgment, knowing that a holy God should destroy you for your sin. And so all Peter can say is, depart from me. I can't be in your presence. And so it's not that Peter feels unworthy. It's that he feels completely disqualified. Depart from me. I am a wretched worm. I cannot be in the presence of a holy God. Friends, I wonder if you've ever had an experience like that. An experience where you realize just what it means that God is holy, right? We, we throw that around, God is holy, but where you really understand what it means that God is holy and that in contrast, you are a sinful wretch. And that just brings you to your knees whether literally or figuratively, and you just feel completely naked and exposed before him, and you feel this like sheer terror because of the judgment that your sin deserves. And you realize that you have earned God's wrath. You realize that you deserve to go to hell. You realize that God will be totally just to punish you for eternity. And you can do just nothing except cry out from the bottom of your heart, mercy. Point number three, the crisis. Peter realizes who it is that is standing before him and who he is in contrast. He just falls on his face. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But friends, the good news in this story is that Jesus doesn't leave Peter in that state of crisis. Instead, he brings him comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And so point number four is the comfort. And the comfort, not only of this particular story, but also of this entire gospel of Luke and also the entire Bible, the comfort is that this realization by Peter of his own sinfulness it doesn't disqualify him from being with Jesus because it's actually for people like him that Jesus came. Because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Peter actually got it backwards. Right? His realization of his own sinfulness doesn't mean that Jesus must depart no, it's actually exactly why Jesus came. So verse 10, Jesus, the gracious Savior, he who is gentle and lowly in heart, a bruised reed he will not break, nor smoldering wick will he quench. Look at his response to comfort, Simon. Do not be afraid. Or as the old King James would put it, Fear not. Fear not. When one has an encounter with the holiness of God, 
When man sees his own wretchedness and sinfulness in light of God's perfect standard, when man realizes that a holy God should crush him for his sin, fear is our natural response. Fear is the appropriate response, a fear that begs God to depart, but it's sinners like that who come to the end of themselves and cry out for God's mercy. It's sinners like that that Jesus came to save. It's sinners who truly mourn over their sinfulness who are in turn blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because it's sinners like that for whom Jesus would go to the cross, bearing the wrath of God in their place, satisfying God's holy wrath against their sins so that they wouldn't have to. The same Peter will later write, 1 Peter chapter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so the very one who stands before Peter Right, bringing his sinfulness to light, exposing his sin, would later bear all of those sins on Calvary in Peter's place. And so even as Peter sees God's holiness and his own sinfulness, Jesus can rightly assure him, do not be afraid, fear not. And so for us, friends, even as God gives us eyes to see his holiness, and then realize our own sinfulness? Well, for those of us who, in response, cry out to God for mercy and look to Christ, Jesus assures us, fear not. Fear not, for Christ has died for sin, and Christ has risen again. Fear not, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, if you see nothing else from this story, Like, I hope you can see what a great and gracious Savior we have. Peter, you realize that you're a sinner? Well, take comfort, Jesus says, because I am a friend of sinners. Take comfort, because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Point number four, the comfort. But our story's not quite over yet because there's a little bit more. It's not just that Jesus comforts Simon, do not fear, with the truth that his sins would be forgiven. No, he goes one step further than that. He lavishes from his fullness grace upon grace by then calling Peter into lifelong service for him. And so point number five is the call. Look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So Jesus takes this fisher of fish and he makes him into a fisher of men. And look again at what Jesus says. I think this is really interesting. It's not, hey, listen, Simon, I think you would make a great evangelist. I want you to please consider a career change and you can come work for me. And if you want, you know, I'll give you a sign up sheet later. This is a sovereign declaration of what Peter is going to do. You will be catching men. 
You see, that's kind of a bold claim. He will be catching men. But then we remember the promise that Jesus gives to his disciples. I am with you always to the end of the age. So was Jesus right? Would Peter actually catch men? Well, that's a really bad question. Of course, Jesus was right. Peter would catch men. He would catch boatloads of men, multitudes of men. You all know the story from Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. How this ex-fisherman, he preaches to a large crowd at Pentecost And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000? I think we can all agree. That is a net-bursting, boat-sinking, like, multitude of souls. Uh, An exceedingly abundantly, above all that we can ask or think kind of haul. And so just like in Luke chapter 5, Jesus causes Peter to catch a multitude of fish. The beginning chapters in the book of Acts, they show how Jesus causes Peter to catch a multitude of men and women for the glory of God. So point number five, the call. Jesus takes Peter, even in his humiliation, and he sets him apart for great things. So that's Luke chapter five, verses one through 11. The crowds, the catch, the crisis, the comfort, and the call. Let me leave you with just two points of application. Two ways in which this story, as Luke presents it to us here, two ways in which it calls us to respond. Application point number one is a call to obedience. I think this story calls us to obedience. Let's think again about the, the key moment in the story. It's when Jesus tells Peter to let down the net. And again, you can just imagine just the, the million things that are going through Peter's mind. I'm the fisherman here. He, he's just the rabbi. We, we've tried all night and we've caught nothing. These are nighttime nets. It's daytime right now. I'm tired. All I want to do is go home and go to sleep. But at your word... I will let down the nets. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And that obedience, as difficult as it was, as strongly as like every instinct in Peter went against obedience, well, that obedience marks the turning point in the story. But because you say so, Now, broadly speaking, I think every Christian in this room, I think we can sort our obedience uh, in our lives into kind of just two general large categories. And this differs for each and every one of us because each of us struggles in different ways and each of us lacks trust in God in different areas of our lives. But broadly speaking, right, there's the easy obediences and, and the hard obediences, The easy obediences are are those commands and those biblical principles that we don't really mind following. Like, for whatever reason, they just come naturally to us. They're easier for us. But then there's the hard obediences. 
Right? Where, where every inclination of our hearts goes against wanting to submit to God's word. For Peter, it's the let down your nets for a catch kinds of commands. And so we'll see a command in the scriptures and we'll begin to rationalize it. But, but I want to, I, I think I know what's best. I know this stuff pretty well and I'm pretty sure. And so everything in us is inclined to disobey the word. And we're tempted to rationalize it. I know better. Yet Jesus, I hear you, but I'm the fisherman. I was out here all night. I know better. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Brothers and sisters, it's those areas of our lives in which obedience is more difficult where God's word calls us to value, but because you say so. What God plainly tells us in his word over every other inkling and inclination and instinct in us. Right? That's what it really means to submit to God's word. So you say, I'm, I'm so tired. It's been such a long day. I really don't want to lead family worship tonight. But because you say so, I want to date this unbeliever. I know what the word says, but, but, but she or he, they, they make me so happy and, and they make me feel fulfilled. And, and, and I, but because you say so, I will obey. Oh, I, I, I don't want to forgive. Oh, I want to I just sulk in, in, in self-pity and bitterness. But because you say so, I must obey. I don't want to put in the effort to love my spouse. I know how it's going to turn out. It's been like this for years and years. But because you say so, I will obey. Friends, this story calls us to an obedience that maybe some of us are not really comfortable with. Where we truly put God's word above our own feelings. We truly put God's word above what we are inclined to do. We truly put God's word above what we think is best. Where because you say so, because God has spoken in his word, matters more to us than anything else. That's the obedience that the Bible calls us to. So application point number one is a call to obedience. Application point number two is to see Christ as worthy. Recall how the story ends. Peter and James and John with him, they leave everything to follow Jesus. They leave their fish. They leave their nets. They leave their businesses, they leave their families, they leave everything to follow Jesus, to become fishers of men, to become disciples, to become apostles, to become the foundation upon which the church would be built. From now on, you will be catching men. And so from then on, their lives were never the same. 
Now, I realize that not everyone is called to full-time ministry. And if the Lord has used this passage to put that onto your heart, right, to serve him with your life in that way, whether that's going to the ministry or going to the missions field or, or something like that, praise God, right? That, that is wonderful. Uh, but for the rest of you, uh, just because you don't feel called to full-time ministry, well, you're not quite off the hook because Jesus does call all of his disciples to a complete devotion to him. Maybe this is where a lot of us get it backwards. Because there's this temptation to think, well, like, here's my job. Here's my life. Here's my family. Here's my friends. Here's my home. And now how does Jesus kind of fit into that? How can my following Jesus make those things better for me? Well, in that case, it's those things that we value the most. And Jesus is only valuable to us to the extent that he can make those things better. How does Jesus make my family life better? How can Jesus make my work life more meaningful? But I think this story shows us that that kind of thinking is actually backwards. Because it's Jesus who is ultimately worthy. Right? It's Jesus who is the pearl of great price. It's Jesus who is so valuable that Peter and his friends are literally willing to leave everything behind to follow him. See, we have left everything and followed you. And so this story is a call to see Christ as worthy. Right? For each of us who professes his name to see him as the preeminent thing in our lives to value him above all else. And then we can see how everything else in our lives, whether it's our job or our family or our friends or our home or whatever it is, all of those things then fit in around Jesus. So that Jesus stops becoming the genie that serves all of those things, and instead we rightly see those things as existing to serve Jesus. Because it's only when we see, for example, our work, our job, as serving Jesus, instead of Jesus serving our work, it's only when we rightly see that, that we could do something as radical as Peter does here and leave our jobs to serve Jesus full time. And it's only when we see our lives as serving Jesus instead of Jesus as serving our lives, that we could do something as radical as Peter would ultimately do in giving his life for the sake of Christ. And again, I'm not saying that God has called you to a specific sacrifice for him. I, I don't know that. Maybe he has. Maybe he hasn't. Right? The Holy Spirit is going to reveal that to you one way or the other. But what I am saying is for everyone who names the name of Christ, unless we see Jesus as worthy, unless we see him as that hidden treasure in the field worth selling everything for, we'll never be willing or able to make that sacrifice when God does call us to it. Application point number two is to see Christ as worthy. Friends, do we see Christ as worthy?
Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage from the Gospel of Luke. We thank you for how clearly it shows the deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray now that we who are your children would respond rightly to that. That we would see Christ as worthy of everything. And that we would examine ourselves and examine those areas of our lives in which we are reluctant to submit to your word and obey. Father, that you would give us grace to humble ourselves under the word's authority and obey because you say so. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.